You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. On March 9th, Taiwan Post will be issuing a stamp commemorating the 150th anniversary of the arrival of Canadian missionary George Leslie Mackay in northern Taiwan. Mackay was unlike most 19th century missionaries. He has been referred to as the son-in-law of Taiwan and was a forward thinker. He was one of the first to oppose the head tax imposed on Chinese in Canada. To help understand who George Leslie Mackay was and the significance of his contributions, I'll be speaking with Reverend Michael Stanton, the founder of the Canadian Mackay Committee. Reverend Stanton has worked for the last 25 years to promote the recognition of Mackay in Canada and on several campaigns for Canada Post to issue a stamp to commemorate George Leslie Mackay. A quick note to listeners about the audio quality of this episode. Unfortunately, there was a bad connection at the time of the recording that couldn't be improved through sound editing, so we'd like to advise you to keep your volume at a moderate level while listening to this episode. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese-Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese-American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. To learn more about TUF, visit their website at www.tufusa.org. Now, without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. It's uh, nice to see you again after many years. <laughs> <laughs> it's been 150 years since Dr. George Leslie Mackay arrived in Taiwan, and I understand that Taiwan Post is going to be commemorating this anniversary with the issue of a stamp on March 9th. So I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about this. But before we get into that, I just wanted to ask how and why did you end up in Taiwan yourself? Well, it started out because of uh, Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution in China. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was a student radical uh, at York University in Toronto in the late 1960s. And, of course, this was when the Vietnam War and the Cultural Revolution were both raging. We all thought that we were all going to save the world by, by promoting revolution. So we had the, it was very involved in the the anti-Vietnam War movement, and they got quite interested in, in China. And uh, in 1967, the student Christian movement uh, at, uh, around the world, actually, uh, had a China study year. And so our uh, SCM branch at York University also had a, some programs on China. And I uh, spent a lot of time going down to Chinatown to the uh, to the uh, communist Chinese bookstore. It was called the Xinhua Su Su uh to uh, buy stuff that we could lay out on a literature table at the uh, at York University. My father, we could buy mm -hmm. Chairman Mao's little red book for twenty five cents, <laughs> and got back to your university, and we could sell it for a dollar. <laughs> oh wow! There you go. A little business. So thanks to Chairman Mao, we 
we made lots of money for the <laughs> student Christian movement. Anyways, anyways, my interest in China began at that point, and then when I went to seminary, it continued, and I was always bringing in, you know, quotes from Chairman Mao and reference to China and subscribed to their magazines when I was at seminary in Indiana, and when I was ready to graduate, the one of my professors, who was also the uh, head of the uh, mission board of our, our church, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which is essentially an American denomination, uh, said, we are starting a new program, a people-to-people program on China, and we'd like you to come and work for it as you're so interested in China. So, so I said, well, yes. And he says, okay, your first job is to learn Chinese. And uh, if you're serious about this, you have to learn it, learn to speak it, read it, write it, and do it well. So he says, you find a school, and we will pay the tuition. So I found this one-year intensive Chinese program at Cornell University, Mm -hmm. which was, like, ridiculously expensive, of course, Cornell being. But they Mm -hmm. paid for it all. And at the end of that year, we we all did very well in this program. And then they sent us off to a second year at uh, at at the Stanford Center, also called the Inter-University Program for Chinese Language Studies, which was located at Taiwan National University in oh. Taipei. Mm-hmm. So that's how I first went to Taiwan in 1974. Uh, and I uh, was at that school for a year and again, a year of intensive Chinese. More intensive because they, the school actually arranged for us to live with a mainlander family who spoke really, really good oh, wow. pure Mandarin. And uh, so we, uh, and they they gave them strict instructions. You are not to speak English with this foreigner, uh, and <laughs> force them to speak speak Chinese and learn. And the second, you are not to ask your kids to your kids are not to ask them to help with their English homework. So, so, <laughs> so that's how I ended up first uh, encountering Taiwan. It was all with National Taiwan University and mainlanders. So that's interesting. So at that time when people went off to study in China, Taiwan was considered China? No, but uh, that in the 1970s, there, there, were, there were no Chinese language programs for foreigners in, in China. Okay. And uh, later on, the Stanford Center, once China opened up, they did move. I believe they moved to, I can't remember if it was Tianjin or okay. Shanghai, but the, the mm-hmm. whole program moved from Taiwan to, to China. Right, right. Years later. Interesting. So how and when did you learn about Dr. George Leslie McKay? Well, that was uh, on my, actually, I learned about him. I went to the Andigan Church, which was just down the street. And this, of course, all the worship was in Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And these were almost all mainlanders. And uh, they had a summer retreat one year in in, in Danshui. And mm-hmm. as part of the retreat, we went to visit uh, uh Alisa University and Oxford College and Mackay's gravesite. So that's where I first learned about George Leslie Mackay. And I actually met Seth Gua, who was quite old at that time, who was mm-hmm. one of Mackay's grandchildren. Didn't really mean a lot to me now, but I have a picture of that. And my Taiwanese friends are so impressed. <gasps> oh, you met Seth Gua. <laughs> <laughs> so that was where I first learned about Mackay. But it didn't really enter into my uh, World, because I came back to Canada and worked at a program in the Canadian Council of Churches on 
developing people-to-people relations with China. And I eventually became disillusioned. I said, we're telling a lot of lies in this program. And, and, and I remember I was the editor of a little newsletter, very enthusiastic. It was very active in China friendship work. Went to China. We were invited by one of the United Front groups. So you returned to the yes, States after, or Canada? Yes, after a year in Taiwan, I came back to Canada. Oh, okay. So in 75, you went back to Canada. Well, 75. And okay. so... Uh, then I had responsibility for a little newsletter about general news about China and especially religion in China. So there was a big thing, the Bishop Zen, who's, who's still quite is alive and in Hong Kong, but very elderly, uh, was arrested in Fujian and then thrown into prison. And so it was in the international news. So we just posted this little, little thing in our newsletter because it was news about religion in China. Well, the Chinese consulate didn't call us directly. They went through, you know, other people and said, they are not very happy that you published this news. Says, well, why? It's oh. just news. It was, you know, news, right. international news. So mm-hmm. they said, no, you don't understand. No one who is a friend of China would ever publish that news story oh, wow. <laughs> about us arresting a Catholic bishop. And I was already beginning to have my doubts, and I guess that was mm-hmm. the straw that brought the camels back. I said, well, then, I guess I'm not a friend of China. At that point, had you visited China? Yes, we were on a uh, we were on a month long tour in '78. Okay. And it was. And then uh, this know, happened we, after that. Uh, sometime in there, I'm not quite yeah. sure when, but, okay. anyways, but then so I left this program after my first assignment. I said mm-hmm. I didn't want to con- I didn't want to renew my assignment yeah, with this program, right. and that church said, "Well, the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan is looking for us to send somebody to Taiwan, and you've been there, and you speak Mandarin, so you're the man." <laughs> and I didn't really want to, to go because, well, that's sort of a, a dead end for anybody who has a career in, in China. So, uh, but they said, well, it's up to you, you know, if, if you want, if you can go and take a parish in some country church if you want then. And I said, oh, no, no, better go to Taiwan. Then. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, so uh, I went. Well, the, the Presbyterian Church asked many churches at that time. Now we are looking at 1979, right? Okay. This is after the Kuomintang had canceled the elections because of uh, Carter establishing recognition with the with the, the with communist China, mm-hmm. and the the Danwai movement was very strong and very active, and people could see there was going to be a, a, a crisis at some point, you know. Uh, So the Presbyterian Church was asking churches who were friendly to, but had never had missionaries in Taiwan, if you could send a missionary to be a witness to whatever happens Mm -hmm. and to share your support. So from the beginning, I was a political missionary. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so uh, I went and uh, I took a little tour of Europe and Southeast Asia on the way. When I got to Singapore, I went to the offices of the Christian Conference of Asia, which later got kicked out of Singapore (laughs) for being too too radical. (laughs) And uh, they they were, oh, have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? I said, no. I said, Reverend Gao has been arrested. And the Reverend Gao was the secretary of the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan. And this was, he had been arrested with others for helping hide Sri Minda. (laughs) This was just the end of April. And I said, well, (laughs) they said, I said, what am I going to do? Here's my, here's my visa. And right on the visa, my Bao Zhongren, the guarantor, was Gao Junming. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. So I went to Hong Kong where we stayed with with another missionary, and they mm-hmm. said, well, you know, you have to go, and, and you know, we'll we'll be sitting by the phone if you come back, and, and uh, we can come and meet you at the airport if they, they don't let you into Taiwan. So anyways, they let me in, 
And it was met by the acting general secretary, who was Aboriginal minister, uh, Reverend Lynn, and an English assistant who was an English missionary, uh, Elizabeth Brown. Mm-hmm. airport and she said well we don't know what's going to happen they may kick all the missionaries out uh, everything is in a chaos uh, we don't really have time to give you any training uh, and anyways wow. you already speak Mandarin so we're putting you up in the YMCA tonight and tomorrow you start at the Aboriginal Student Center well they call it the Mountain Student Center mm-hmm. this was for Tatsuan uh, and post-secondary Aboriginal students in mm-hmm. Taipei it was near it was not too far from Taida and the Taipei Kungzuan, the Taipei, which is now Taipei Koji Dashi, Taipei, what is this University of Technology. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they said, and we don't know why they let you in. <laughs> because on your CV, they saw your background, your background in China and the, the Chinese Friendship Association and so on and mm-hmm. so on. And, and we, we, we're pretty sure that they want you, they let you in because they figure that you will say something or do something stupid. And then they will be able to use you as evidence. You see, the Presbyterian Church is actually working with the communist China. This was what the KMT's line oh. was. The Presbyterian Church was a cat's paw of the communist party. Okay. Okay. So uh, they said, you will be, you'll be watched. Everything you say will be, you know, recorded or listened, noted down. Your letters will be opened. Your telephone will be tapped. You know, just be very, very careful. So I was sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and it's true. <laughs> so uh, this was uh, uh, Taiwan in the this crisis. Well. Uh, so that was May 1980. I went to Taiwan, and then, so then, like I could tell stories about that forever, but yeah. that's another topic. Yes. But, uh, but in eight, 1981 was the 100th anniversary of Mackay Memorial Hospital. They put on a play. There was a little play, and they were looking for someone to play Mackay. Mm-hmm. And I had a big beard, a big red beard. Then <laughs> I even had hair then. <laughs> and and. They said, you're the man. You're going to be Makai. And I said, <laughs> I said, but I don't even speak Taiwanese. He said, okay, you can speak Mandarin for your part. Since <laughs> so, so that was what I began to learn about Makai and playing Makai in this play in 1981 at Makai Memorial Hospital. Oh, wow. Thank you for that. That's not at all what I expected. <laughs> so what is it about his story that has led you to dedicate yourself to sharing his story? Because I know that you spent so many years promoting recognition of him, especially in Canada, as the national hero of historic importance. It really became important to me after I came back to Canada in 1992. And I was looking for something that would help promote Taiwan-Canada relations. And I was also involved in the Taiwanese Human Rights Association of Canada, but that's another topic too. And I said, well, here's Mackay, here's this Canadian who's so respected in Taiwan and so honored and not forgotten. And that in Canada, even the Presbyterian Church has pretty much forgotten about him. And this seems unjust because, first of all, he was not like any other missionary. He breaks all the stereotypes you have of 19th century missionaries. And secondly, uh, we need some kind of a symbol of Canada-Taiwan friendship. And saying this Canada-Taiwan friendship, look, it goes back 100 years to to the 19th century. And and Taiwan is Canada's oldest friend in Asia. This is where our relationship with Asia began. There were no other Canadian missionaries in East Asia before Mackay. So what were some of the stereotypes that he broke? The stereotype of a missionary, obviously, is that they went 
with a the missionary obviously went to to spread Christianity, but also you must remember at that time Britain especially, but the the Europe was considered itself the most progressive, the most advanced part of the world, and they were also taking European and British civilization to the rest of the world. And so there was this idea that the missionaries were superior and bringing superior culture to people. And uh, Mackay was, uh, he, he, he also, he was very proud of being Canadian, proud of being Scottish, and proud of being British. And he said that, that all, all three of those were important to him. And he certainly was interested in promoting science and technology in, in, in Taiwan. But let me read a quote of something that made him different. And this was in 1873. So in 1873, a, a professor of zoology from the University of Michigan named Joseph Steer traveled in China and Southeast Asia, collecting all sorts of uh, paleontological and zoological uh, specimens. And he spent eight months in Taiwan and he visited Mackay and spent some time with him. And here's what he wrote. I found the walls of the house he occupied hung with rough charts and maps for his teaching geography and astronomy. And he was drilling a little band of young Chinese. During my stay with him, I was astonished at the enthusiasm and zeal he had awakened in the young men who were studying with him and could not help attributing this to his innate American ideals. And he knew that Mackay was Canadian, so he's talking American in terms of culture, right? Uh, of and unite American ideas of the equality of all men before God, the universal brotherhood of mankind, and the habit growing out of this of treating all men as equal. It seemed to me that he had a much more kind and frank way of treating the Chinese with whom he was associated than had the European missionaries who, with all their belief in the value of the human soul, show unconsciously in every act that they believe they are dealing with an inferior race. I may have put too much stress on this, but it seems to me a subject worthy of consideration of all missionaries. Uh, and of course, Mackay's treating his students, not just as students, but as his teachers. He learned Taiwanese culture from them. He learned how to operate. He learned uh, how to speak with them. But when they decided he needed to get married after he'd been in Taiwan for five years, they arranged marriage for him with uh, with one of the early converts, a young woman, uh, her name was, uh, later they gave her the name Minnie, but uh, that's another story, why why Minnie? But uh, she, uh, Mackay accepted this. He said, fine. So he, he became such a part of Taiwanese culture that he didn't look down on Taiwanese marriage customs mm. or say, well, no, no, I have to marry a proper, you know, white woman to be the proper missionary's wife, you know. Mm -hmm. He said, fine, you you arrange for me. Only I only have three conditions. <laughs> One is that she be intelligent, which many was, uh, that she be not have bound feet. Mm -hmm. And many did not have bound feet. This is a, and third that she be not too bad looking. <laughs> <laughs> so they found uh, a woman who, we're not quite sure the exact kinship, but she was a kin kinswoman of of his first two disciples. And they all came from the same village, which is today is Wugu on, in Taipei, in, mm -hmm. in Taipei Shoot. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they married, they got married on May 27th, 1878 at the British consulate. <laughs> and 
people say, well, why did he get married to the British consulate? Well, who, what other minister was there to marry them? But I think Mackay had already been criticized for this decision by the missionaries who said he's going to regret this. Being married to the local Being married to Chinese. Mm -hmm. And not only that, they said, well, I don't know if they said white men or European men, but European men are not meant to marry Chinese ladies. Uh, And uh, he wanted this to be seen as legitimate, so he had the consul perform the wedding in the presence of other foreigners Mm -hmm. and people from his small followers. And he had to defend this to the foreign mission board. He only told the foreign mission board he had been married after they got married. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and he wrote a letter and he said, and I believe uh, as my, uh, uh, as, as my, uh, my Lord Jesus did that uh, in God's eyes, all people are equal and therefore I act accordingly. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so Mackay was, was that kind of person. He, didn't just come to teach, he came to learn and became part of the community. So, right. Which is why he was so much loved. Mm-hmm. All missionaries, you know, well, not all of them, set up hospitals and schools, right, and, and go around and establish churches. But he was only one of three missionaries in the 19th century that married a Chinese wife. Mm-hmm. And he had a unique relationship with the, with the people that no other missionary had. So that's why they call him the they let go the son-in-law of Taiwan. <laughs> he married into Taiwan. Yes, literally. And what can you tell me about his upbringing? Because I think that definitely influenced the values that he had. In my research, I learned about something called the Zora settlers and the Zora pioneers. Who are they, and how important is that to understanding Mackay? Very important to understanding him. Mackay was born in 1844, the, the, the youngest son of a, of a Scottish evangelical Presbyterian family who had, with other people, they say about 200, had come as refugees from the Sutherland Highland Clearances. This is when the huge aristocratic landlords pushed all their, their peasants off the land and replaced them with sheep, right, mm-hmm. to, to supply the, uh, the wool for the English English Industrial Revolution. And so these people were sent off to given land in the still the forests of what today is uh, Oxford County in South Central Ontario. And they had this very tightly knit community. Uh, their, their Presbyterian faith was central to their community and their Scottish identity and the memory of the injustice that had brought them there. That the way these aristocrats had, had treated them like dirt and they actually were sort of looked down on even in canada because they were highlanders they weren't really civilized scots from the south they were considered backwoods scots zora is it's a township within the county but in that township is where these these scottish highland pioneers settled in zora township uh-huh. and zora township is that what we call modern day ontario well, it's part of Oxford County, and in Oxford County is in, in Ontario, right? Yes. Right, right. Okay, yeah, just for people who don't know, because I have some listeners who may not be so familiar with, like, the Canadian history. Or it's about a two-hour drive west of Toronto, and it's very rural, even today. It's milk cattle and beef cattle country. So Mackay grew up in this community, first of all, where 
Presbyterianism was the heart of your identity because that's what made you Scottish. And that this memory of the injustice gave Mackay a strong sense of, of justice that, uh, that uh, and, and anger at all justice. People noted that he sometimes when he saw something which he felt was unjust, he would become almost uncontrollably angry. And it also gave him skills that a farmer has growing up in the frontier, you know. There's no doctor for miles, so you have to learn frontier medicine. You have to learn how to pull a tooth. Uh, you have to learn, you know, the, the, to get up at the dawn and work in the winter. The cows have to be fed and milked, and and you, you just keep going, even if you're feeling sick. So all of these skills and attitudes and this the strong concept of the equality of all people and, and the emphasis on, on justice were something that, contributed to Mackay's success in Taiwan. So let me give an example of this. Let yes, me give an example please. of this. Mackay um, is famous for pulling teeth, right? Yes, um, that's what I wanted to ask and, uh, you about. But he was not a dentist. I mean, people still, you, you ask people in Taiwan, not everybody knows, they know the name Mackay because of yes. this humongous Mackay Memorial Hospital yes. that has branches in in, in Damsui, Taipei, Xinzhu, Taichung, and Taidong. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. It's a huge hospital. It's the biggest private hospital mm-hmm. in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they say, oh, well, who was he? Oh, well, he was an American dentist or an American doctor. <laughs> so, uh, well, here's how he didn't go planning to, to pull teeth. So here's his own account of do-it-yourself dentistry, which he learned back in Frontier in Zara. Mm-hmm. My first attempt to extract a tooth was in 1873, uh, leaving Dekchan, that's Shinju, with the students one day. We were followed by a dozen soldiers who had been sent to watch our movements. So they, they were even suspicious of him. <laughs> the Qing dynasty was suspicious of what he was up to. One of their number was suffering intense pain from a decayed tooth. He said, there is a worm in it. I had no forceps, but after examining it, I got a piece of hardwood shaped it as desired and with it removed the tooth it was primitive dentistry to be sure but the tooth was out and the poor soldier wept for joy and was most profuse in his gratitude and so from that time on Mackay found that pulling teeth was a way to overcome prejudice and suspicion <laughs> because of the immediate relief of pain from the, you know, from the the, the well, we call it the root canal, you know, the, the, the infection. There. Mm-hmm. So, so he made that part of his, his, uh, his program, his act. So they'd go uh, stand in, in front of a temple, which, of course, was the town, the town uh-huh. square, the market, where all around the temple square. Mm-hmm. And they first pulled teeth distribute uh, medicines to, the, to people and look at some people who were sick. And then after that, he would, they would sing some hymns. And then uh, he'd preach a sermon, right? Or his students <laughs> would preach a sermon. So, so that, and they would itinerate all over Taiwan. Strangely enough, in bare feet. Oh wow! Because there were no roads to speak of, right? You were tracking through the mud, anyways. Mm-hmm. And walking with shoes was just very hard on the feet. So this kept them from getting corns and calloused feet. So. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so what were some other misconceptions about Mackay? I believe a lot of people, there are some misconceptions about the interaction he had with the indigenous people, like how much interaction he had. Well, Mackay was criticized in his own lifetime for for going native, uh, but uh, also he insisted 
the biggest financial supporter of his mission from the, within the Presbyterian Church in Canada was the Women's Missionary Society. That's always been true, right, in, right into the, our own days. And so well, other missions have lots of women missionaries. These were generally single women, you know, who, who not having got married, went off to be a missionary somewhere and, and found a, a life there and often did, did a lot. But Mackay said, we don't need these women to come here to teach sewing and tea making and, and you know, we're not teaching English anyways to, uh, to, to, to Taiwanese women. Our Taiwanese women converts can do it better. And they don't have to learn the language. They know it. They don't have to learn the customs. And they, they know everybody. And so they can enter right into the kinship networks and the homes of people. And we don't need women as teachers in the girls' school because our his wife became the head of the girls' school. Many became the head because we have people who, who are able to teach already. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a doctor. We need doctors to come here. Uh, so uh, they never forgave him for this, and they put out a fatwa. For, for several years, they refused to allow any money from the women's missionaries so that it be used to support Makai's mission. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there was a great controversy about this. Um, so even in his lifetime, he was criticized. Of course, now, of course, with these uh, ideas of post-colonialism and the post-modernism, and generally the fact that Christianity is a religion of the past, and especially in Canada, which is becoming a very secular country, more so than the United States, the idea of 19th century foreigners going over to try to convert people uh, and, and all the other stereotypes of missionaries uh, is just no longer acceptable. And so Mackay is criticized for being colonialist, uh, for being a cultural imperialist. And by definition, of course, you are changing, if you change people's religion, you are changing their culture. Right? And in post-colonial theory, this is forbidden. Right. So, uh, yeah. so he is criticized for that today. And uh, Mackay did not evangelize among what today we consider the Taiwan's indigenous people, who in the mm-hmm. northern town are the Tile mm-hmm. tribe. And he had reasons for doing this. He said it, it wasn't going to work. And uh, but he did in the 1880s, early 1880s, he began a mission to the Gumalan people of the on the Ilan plain. Uh, who were the Plains Aboriginal peoples who were being pushed out, impoverished by the invading Chinese, who were basically stealing their land. In those days, the Qing government, as a sign of your submission to the government, demanded two things. One, that you wear a queue. Mm-hmm. So they had to stop wearing their hair Aboriginal oil and have, mm-hmm. have their head shaved. And second, that you adopt the Chinese Chinese gods and, and ancestor mm-hmm. worship so that you you know you burn incense, you take part in community mm-hmm. temple festivals and so mm-hmm. that you show so this was not a religious so much as a political thing. So in this process of this mass conversion of the Gumalan people, which was amazed, Makai, why are hundreds of people all coming out and wanting to be baptized? We've barely even preached to them, right? I have concluded what Makai started was what we call a ethnic revitalization movement among the Gumalan, who saw Mackay and the message that he was preaching and also his connections with Great Britain uh, as a force which could give them a new hope and and to help strengthen them against the the oppression that they were suffering from the Chinese. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So they willingly joined his church? They were There were mass conversions, which was very had not happened anywhere else in Taiwan. But 
as part of these mass conversions, they would, of course, if once you became a Christian, these idols, then you can't have them in your home anymore. Well, what do you do with them? They're now, now you sell them to a used God shop, and some anthropologist will go and buy them for his collection. <laughs> you can't throw them in the garbage. Um, you can't pass yeah. them on to somebody else. Sure. Because this was specifically a household god; these hmm. were not temple gods. Little oh. little household as, hmm. uh, and so they would bring them out and burn them, and as, with all the other paraphernalia. And so Mackay refers to this a couple times in 1894 and another. So in 1884 and then again in 1892 occasion. And he's they say, look, look, here he is. Here's this here's this imperial. He's he's destroying native culture by burning their idols. Well, Mackay was not burning their idols; they were burning their idols. <laughs> And Mackay was was witnessing this. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is a listener-supported podcast, and we want to take a moment to thank listeners like you for your generous contributions. You make our work possible. As the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast and a Golden Crane Award winner, we are dedicated to bringing you the stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. And if you haven't already... You can make a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash talk well, Yeah, well, that's interesting because it actually shows that they would rather adopt the Christian faith than to adopt what the Chinese are trying to impose on them. Well, how much they adopted the Christian faith is open to question. Okay. But they adopted a new identity of which Christianity, uh, at least uh, minimally, was a part. And it worked because up until the revival of, of uh, the Plains Aborigines in the last 20 years, the only Plains Aboriginal group, which marginally in two villages now in Hualien, continued to maintain its language and its culture, were the Gumalan tribe. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, is that even though they went over to Christianity, if they were able to preserve any of their own culture and traditions. So well, they did. And yeah. uh, many of the People, you know, the other thing, or the third thing was the Chinese wanted you to take a Chinese surname. Now, indigenous people in Taiwan did not have surnames. They have what's called, you know, patronymic systems where you have your name and then the next thing to identify is your father's name, then your grandfather's name, and so on and so on. And so many of the people in the Gamalan adapted Guy, which is the J of Maji, the Guy. As their surname. And even today in this uh, village, Sinsu in Fanbin Tanjirim Halian, there are a lot of people named Guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> surname yeah. Guy. Guy, which is. J of Maji, the J of Maji, Ma Guy in Taiwan. Ma Guy. I'm just curious, how much has changed in terms of when you first came across Dr. Mackay um, in terms of what was known about him and once you started researching and doing work on documenting and telling his story? Well, the, the biggest change is uh, up until the uh, early 2000s, if you wanted to research Mackay and read his uh, correspondence, you would have to go to the United Church Archives in Toronto mm-hmm. and go through these very delicate onion skin handwritten letters of his. Mm-hmm. There were people who selected bits from his letters, you know, and quotes. So in much of his letters, some of his letters, he would he would just excerpt quotes from his letters into his book from Far Formosa, which was available in Taiwan, but not much anywhere else because there wasn't really any interest in, in doing study in Mackay. And the other thing was his his diaries, which are the primary source, 30 mm-hmm. years of diaries, mm-hmm. uh, were kept at... Oxford College in the little museum at Oxford College at Aletheia University. But 
they were they were just kept in a glass case sort of as sacred relics mm-hmm. in Taiwan yeah and people they made it very hard they didn't really want people touching them and researching them sure so it was not until people got busy in the 1990s when Taiwan history became what people wanted to study in Taiwan instead of Chinese history and Mackay then became a part of Taiwanese history so now we have both in English and Chinese, all of his diaries. So they're available for anybody to read and research. And a huge five-volume book oh set goodness. of his entire 30 years of correspondence with the and foreign mission. Available in they're available in English and also uh, in Chinese and online and mm-hmm. as well as in the books. So that's the big change. Everything about Makai is accessible. There's been a lot more research. Uh, I'm part of this. Until the 1990s and even since in Taiwan, Mackay was like a saint to the Presbyterians, right? Mm -hmm. And so what was written about him and when they talked about him, and they did commemorate, they always commemorated the day that he landed as the anniversary of all of the church in northern Taiwan, Mm -hmm. March 9th, was sort of uh, what we call a hagiography, stories about saints, illustrative stories about saints, and out of these came some legends, which which weren't really true, but that's happened with other saints too, right? Catholic saints. Mm -hmm. So starting in the 90s, people began to to look at Mackay with a more historical perspective. And I mm-hmm. was part of that because in promoting him as Canada, I said, well, Canadians aren't going to buy into a Taiwanese saint. We have to show right. that this man is historically significant in mm-hmm. Taiwan and for Canada. So in 1997, I organized the first ever, even in Taiwan, international academic conference on George Leslie Mackay and his legacy in Canada and Taiwan. And it was a big success. And that's really gave a big push to Mackay studies, both in Taiwan and Canada. Mm-hmm. And out of that, of course, then we said one of the projects we have to do is begin preparing for the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of his death in 2001. Mm-hmm. So now much more is known because of research that's been done, including by people who are critical of him, right? which is good. So uh, it's a whole different world now. Right. What do you know and what can you tell my audience about when he arrived and how he ended up going to Taiwan? He offered himself to the Foreign Missionary Committee, and he actually was interested in going to India because he had gone to Edinburgh to study with Alexander Duff, who had worked in India. And India was the big, of course, being a British colony, was a big place for missionaries to go to. But uh, the Foreign Missionary Committee, for whatever reasons, decided we're going to send you to China, but we don't know where, and that's all right. You just take the boat to China, (laughs) and you go and visit our our fellow Presbyterians, the English Presbyterians, who already from the 1850s had had a mission in Xiamen, Amoy, right? mm-hmm. which of course speaks the same language, the, right. the Nanhua. So uh, he did that and uh, took the, the ship across to, from San Francisco, across to Hong Kong and then up to Amoy. And uh, they suggested, why don't you go look at Taiwan? because we have a mission there in the south, but uh, there's not many people and we need people in, in, in Formosa. They always call it Formosa. So on December 29th, 1871, he arrives in Takao, Kaohsiung, mm-hmm. and meets uh, Richie, who was the, the English Presbyterian doctor who was the missionary. And uh, 
after three months or two months really of intensively studying both written Chinese and spoken Amoy, they take the boat up to Tamsui and they get off in Mackay's diary records about three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> they get off the boat and they land and something said to him, this is the place. And he was immediately fell in love with this place. And of course, it's beautiful with Guanyin San on one side and Yamin San on the other in the river. And that was March 9th? That was March 9th. That was the beginning of the mission. That's why we celebrate March 9th. So he said he felt like it was as if his suitcases had been labeled from Zora to Tamsui, China, even though he didn't know that's where he was going. And we can see from the stamp in the background there why he had the nickname the Black Bearded Barbarian, right? Right. It's famous for his beard. Yes. In those days, I guess the Taiwanese used to call all the foreigners like barbarians, right? Is that well, how that works? Well, Hua Na, Hua Na, right? Hua yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually helped his connection with the, the Gomalan. They said, oh, they call us Hana, and they call you Hana. Yes, they so call the aboriginals be, must, also. So we're, we're brothers. You see, we're brothers. We're all Hana and, uh, because we're not Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> As we talked about, um, they're going to be marking the 150th anniversary of his arrival. And I understand that you've been campaigning to get Canada Post to issue a stamp to commemorate this 150th anniversary. And I understand that it hasn't been approved And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your work with that, because as we mentioned, Taiwan Post is issuing a stamp, but Canada Post has turned it down. So could you compare the journey or the procedure that you had to go through to get the stamp approved by Canada Post versus Taiwan Post? Yes, well, this was not the first time. We tried twice before in 2001 and in Canada Post. And in in 2001 and also in 2011. But uh, were not successful, but both these campaigns were not very well organized and, and a bit late. Mm-hmm. So this time we started I started three years ahead of time. I'm a stamp collector, so this oh, is wow. a big thing for me. Okay, okay <laughs> and, I understand. And and we did get a stamp from Taiwan in 2001, mm-hmm. but that took some string pulling and personal guanxi even to get it in Taiwan in 2001. But they did come up with a stamp, mm-hmm. a beautiful stamp in 2000. Mm-hmm. So, so we started the campaign. And got support, we got the petition, we had letters. I, I wrote a 21-page dossier uh, addressing every question and possible objection that I could think of. You know, well, what, what's he's a missionary? Why do we want to commemorate a missionary? You know, and, and uh, so on and so on. Why, why would he be important to Canada? I mean, so he's in Taiwan, but, and so on. And try to overcome the, the, the stereotypical prejudices and show there were reasons, the, the good reasons that they, for having a stamp and that he met all the qualifications and that in the past Canada had issued stamps commemorating religious figures and, and missionaries and so there's, there was a precedent, etc., etc. We got members of parliament to write letters of support, former diplomats including the former ambassador in Taiwan and then he was Canada's ambassador in China, wrote a very strong letter of support uh, the, all the churches, the United Church Church, Presbyterian Church, wrote letters. We got all these letters of support. And so we did everything I thought we could possibly do. 
and it wasn't enough. The, now, Canada Post is actually, a, it's a gongo. It's, it's a supposedly a private corporation. And so they have what they call a stamp advisory committee, mm-hmm. which looks at everybody's, anybody can submit a suggestion for a stamp. Sure. It's the same thing in the United States. And the stamp advisory committee is supposed to look at them all and sort through and say, well, we think these ones would be good. They are, however, an advisory committee, not the, that's why they're called advisory. Not the so stamp they're not committee. the ones that make the decision. No, the decision is made by a person who is the head of the stamp stamp oh. section of Canada Post. Hmm. Uh, and so I actually had a lot of correspondence with him to trying to oh. brainwash him. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and uh, so then they make a decision. And of course, so the decision came out in May and it was, they just said, well, unfortunately, no. And then they sent you a standard form. There were many good suggestions, but in one year, we can only issue so many stamps. We, 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 you're always free to try again. Hmm. They will never, as a matter of policy, tell you why, which makes sense. Oh, boy. Because if you say why, then what people get, what do you mean he wasn't important enough? Mm-hmm. He's important to us, you know, right, <laughs> or yeah, whatever, sure. you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they just, that was it. And I was very depressed, really depressed, And because uh, I'd worked for years on this. Taiwan Post, uh, we, we worked with them, and uh, they said yes. And unfortunately, the stamps that they published, I'm not, too, I'm not really happy with. Why is that? Well, because, the, well, of course, see, there are many Mackays, right? As they said, for, the, for many of the Presbyterians in Northern Taiwan, he's a saint, right? Yes. And the father of their church. And that's what's yes. important. Yes, yes. Well, He's the father of our church. Of course, we want a picture of our church. I have a church on here, you know. And uh, the Canadian Mackay Committee, myself and our, our, our chair, in our correspondence with, with the Taiwan or Zhonghua Post, as they call it, when we deliver, we call it Taiwan Post. Uh, the, uh, yeah. We emphasized that the reason for having this stamp is and, and wanting to use it a 28 Kwai airmail, overseas airmail. Values so that people can mail this to Canada. Oh yes, and and also we want this stamp to have something which will suggest that we are celebrating 150 years of Canada-Taiwan relations, not just Mackay, and that we need to emphasize Mackay's links with the people, even perhaps his marriage. One of the things is why don't you issue two stamps, one of him and one of his wife? You know, mm. emphasizing the Canada side and the Taiwan side, mm. but emphasizing the relationship. Yes. With Canada and also his relationship with the people. So what did they do? They issue a stamp with the big beard. But what's in the background? A big, the big Tamsui, 1935 Tamsui Church, which is the very mm-hmm. attractive. So basically, here you are, stereotypical missionary, went to Taiwan and founded churches, right? which is is a non-starter in Canada. So, mm-hmm. so that's why I'm disappointed. And it's what is the value of the stamp? 28 new Taiwan mm-hmm. dollars, which mm-hmm. is about a little less than a dollar U.S. and a little more than a dollar mm-hmm. Canadian. So it was issued on March 9th. And you can go to the Jungwa Post website and order the stamps if you want. But I, I felt it was a bit of a failure because the whole point was to help promote Canadian recognition of Mackay. And mm-hmm. this doesn't do it. it it's, it'll make all the Presbyterians very happy in Taiwan. Right, yeah. But just from looking at the stamp, you don't you don't see that connection there. Yeah. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Different agendas. The Presbyterians mm-hmm. are celebrating a saint mm-hmm. and their founder of, of their church. And, and I'm saying, well, mm-hmm. we need to use Mackay as a bridge between Taiwan and Canada and a symbol of the long time relationship that we've had. Right. And so right. when I was talking with right. uh, Ambassador Chun in Ottawa about doing this and, mm-hmm. and so on, at one point in the discussion, I, I said, you know, it's not, we're doing all this, but, you know, it's not about Mackay. It's about. 
Taiwan's relations with Canada, mm-hmm. uh, which Mackay is a symbol. Right. So he really liked that. And you mentioned his wife, uh, Minnie, that she was given that name Minnie. Was there a story about yes. that? Uh, as, as you know, in Taiwanese people, in the old days, they would often be given a name to, to scare off the ghosts. Okay. And so she was called, you know, Tsong, Tsongya, Onion. <laughs> onion, right? <laughs> And uh, so when they got married, Mackay said, well, you know, it's, you're an adult now and you need to change your name to an adult name. And so he changed it to Tangna, Tongming, which means, right, Han Tongming, only Han Tongming, right? You're very smart, smart, right? And it turns out that she was very smart, really smart, and a, a woman of great self-possession and intelligence. And she was adored through the church, even after Mackay died. Although the missionaries then succeeded Mackay, they tried to marginalize her and mm. the other students because they wanted to bring more progressive European, North American ways to this mm. mission and put them in their place. You know. But Mini is the short of Minerva. Minerva is the Greek word for the Greek god Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. So wisdom, right? <laughs> so, That's so Great. I didn't know that. Well, the other interesting thing is that he's often referred to as Dr. Mackay, but the doctor is the doctor of divinity, right? That's an honorary degree they gave him when he came back in 1881, right? Okay, yeah. Because I wonder if people think that he was a medical doctor or whatever. Well, many people do, yes. They they do, because obviously you see Mackay Hospital will help him. Right, 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 right. Um, so what are some of the lasting contributions that he's made that we can still see in Taiwan? You've alluded to some of them. Well, obviously the church is, is there. And so you see that in all the, uh, the Presbyterian churches in northern Taiwan, the south of Taiwan, south of Taizong, was, of course, the English Presbyterian mission. But now they're all the Presbyterian church in Taiwan. So one of the things they're doing in Taiwan uh, as activities is they're having like little pilgrimages, just like the Catholics have pilgrimages. So they'll go visit the different churches which were founded by Mackay. And somebody oh. give it a little talk about Mackay. How None many of, were there? Well, he founded 60 congregations. None of the buildings are left at okay. that time. So all of the, okay. their modern buildings. Uh, and the, the Gamalan congregations all died mm-hmm. except one, the mm-hmm. one in Hualien. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that's why I say maybe they weren't really that deeply converted to Christianity. Right? But the, uh, the, the next thing you see are the institutional memory. Of course, the first thing that dominates everyone's mind is Mackay Memorial Hospital. Mackay, yes, did dentistry. Uh, passed out quinine from malaria, did, did simple operations, you know, help people, and had the clinic, which was built in 1881 in Tamsui. And, of course, he didn't staff it much of the time. There was a Dr. Johansson and the doctor from the British consulate who volunteered his time. And his students also were trained in, in simple medical procedures. So uh, people would come there for, for treatment, but he would he was basically traveling around the country. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Pulling teeth and doing. Sometimes <laughs> they did simple operations. You see, records that somebody was injured by an Aboriginal arrow shot by the, oh, wow. the tile people, and they had to extract the arrow and wow. do the little operation. So, so you see the the Mackay Memorial Hospital. Mm-hmm. And then you see the institutions of Aletheia University, which is on the campus is the original Oxford College, which mm-hmm. was built in 1880 and opened in 1882. And then beside it is Tom Kong High School, which mm-hmm. actually includes everything from a nursery right up to high school, which was founded in 1914 by Mackay's son, George William Mackay, mm-hmm. who came back as a missionary himself in 1912. 
10 years after his father had died. But the other thing is, in the memory that people have of Mackay, they have these wonderful stories of how he was uh, just so... uh, uh, such an inspiration to them and how he taught them to appreciate nature, how he taught them to study all the time, uh, mm. how he taught them how to love to love people. You know? mm. And uh, he's uh, important in that his grave, of course, is, is there. And this is also a pilgrimage site and sort of a mm-hmm. historic site in mm-hmm. Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So this is the way that he's remembered. But now there's another way that he's remembered, and that is in the spirit of the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. As a Scottish John Knox-type Presbyterian, mm-hmm. Mackay believed very strongly in what today we call human rights, although that word didn't exist in Mackay's mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. talked about the equality of all people before mm-hmm. God. And that also that essentially, although governments are not necessarily evil, that the church is not subservient to the government. Mm-hmm. And if the governments are doing things which violate God's laws, which now include this idea of human rights, then Christians have a duty to resist mm-hmm. and and oppose this, mm-hmm. even if it costs something. And this is what the Presbyterian Church did, particularly starting in the 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. With the Declaration on Human Rights and the, 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 the statement on our national situation and the appeal for uh, our appeal for uh, more religious freedom and language rights. So the spirit of the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan today, we could trace that in some way back to Mackay and that Scottish Reformation spirit that he filled his students with and they filled their generations and so on. I understand that he was actually quite forward-thinking and ahead of his time. I understand that he was opposed to something called the head tax in Canada. Can you tell my listeners what that is and how did Mackay learn about it and how did he oppose it? Well, um, in 1875, the United States didn't just impose a tax. They banned all Asian Chinese Mm -hmm. immigration. Yes, the Chinese exclusion. And uh, then many Chinese began coming from California, where they were being persecuted and in mob violence, lynched, uh, to Canada, where the gold fields were opening up in, in the caribou. And so then, of course... Canadian white people began saying, oh, these Chinese are taking over and so on. And they wanted, in British Columbia especially, uh, they said, look, they, they, they eat weird food. They have heathen customs. They're, not, they're dirty. Uh, you know, they're not honest. Uh, and uh, and uh, also, you know, they're, they're, they're going to corrupt people. So we need to pass a law which will restrict immigration like the Americans have or banned immigration. The government at that time was not inclined to do so, to their credit, uh, but they did eventually because of one small riot which happened in Vancouver, uh, not because of the, the Chinese, the prime minister at the time, Sir John A. McDonald said, but because of the danger for, of civil disturbances in Vancouver by the white people, they passed a law that imposed a $50 head tax on Chinese. Now, Mackay was in Canada when that happened, and he said, he began to oppose this quite openly and said this was unchristian, un-British, unconstitutional. It was immoral that Canada needs uh, needs everyone to help build this country and that the Chinese are as good a citizen as any, any British Canadian and perhaps, as far as the morality is concerned, even better. <laughs> so... Uh, so that's, he began speaking about it then, that they went back to Taiwan and was out of the picture and the head tax was instituted finally uh, in 1885. When he came back in 1893, 
his wife and his student, who later became his son-in-law, they said, oh, well, you have to pay the head tax before you can land. Mm-hmm. And Mackay was outraged and began that very weekend speaking at a church in Vancouver about governments with unjust laws that will be mm-hmm. judged by God for their mm-hmm. injustice. And, mm-hmm. and so he started a campaign. It's a one-man campaign, but he was very charismatic, holding speaking about the head tax and urging people to oppose it. So the first meeting was held in December 1893, only weeks after he got back in Woodstock in Oxford County, where all the local political leaders and the clergy were all there, and Mackay spoke, and they all passed a resolution urging the government to repeal the head tax. And he did this all across eastern Canada. There weren't really any Presbyterian churches in western Canada at that Mm -hmm. time. And Eventually, got the in 1895, got the Presbyterian Church in Canada, where he was moderator that year, to pass a resolution mm-hmm. opposing the head tax and agree to send a delegation to visit the Prime Minister and express their opposition. They passed the resolution, but that visit never happened. The Prime Minister of the day died, and oh, then there was there were some other issues, but then. And Mackay then went back to, to Taiwan, so that it all, it all came to nothing. Yeah. But Mackay is this lonely prophet, unique. And I've researched this. I've looked at old newspapers in different mm-hmm. cities and had friends research things for mm-hmm. me. Unique among white Canadians right. for speaking out vigorously and, and planting his flag on the, on the side of the Chinese and mm-hmm. saying this, this has got to stop. It is immoral. What are some things that are his lasting contributions that we can see in Canada today? Well, that's the thing. There aren't any lasting contributions. I mean, his, his prophetic opposition to the head tax is something which, which Canada should learn a lesson from. Had we listened to him then, we wouldn't have had had the head tax apology and compensation issue and have began to confront our, you know, our history of racism, uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, in Oxford County, he is a local hero, very much so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now there are sites where his memory can be touched. And you have to have a site for this type of memory. Sure. Right? For mm-hmm. most of us, it's, it's a gravestone, right? We go to visit our parents' mm-hmm. graves, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a gravestone. But for Mackay, what's the site? He's buried in Taiwan. Yeah. So in 2001, we got the Ontario Historical Foundation to set up, put up a plaque in the church in, in the town, the village of Embro, which is the village within the township of Zara, commemorating Mackay. Mm-hmm. And that became a site where people could go and the Taiwanese groups go and take a picture with themselves. Then in 2004, Aletheia University, which was built with contributions from the people of Oxford County in 1881, donated a huge statue, Mackay bust, which now stands on the park-like grounds of the old county courthouse. Very impressive. You're saying in Oxford County? In Oxford County. Woodstock Uh is the, the, the largest city in Oxford County. So... He's remembered, and then Woodstock, actually in 2000, mm-hmm. established a sister city relationship with Tam Sui Town, and they've had delegations go back and forth. And then the high school and Tam Kong High School, through the efforts of the principal of Tam Kong, also established a sister school relationship, and they've had three exchanges. This matters very much to Taiwan. You might say, well, actually, is not that important, but it's Taiwan's as far as I know, it's Taiwan's only sister city relationship in Canada. We tried to get one in Toronto, and we didn't get very far. Is there anything else that you could share that you came across in your work and research about Dr. George Leslie Mackay that you'd like to share that we haven't talked about? 
Well, yes. Okay. Like so many of these 19th century intellectuals, missionaries, Mackay had a great intellectual curiosity. He loved studying nature, especially uh, shells, corals, astronomy, uh, botany. And as he traveled around with the students, they would collect all sorts of samples. And he uh-huh. would give talks about this. First of all, just so in Oxford County, he had courses in geology and botany and astronomy. In every church that he set up, he would have a world map, which is interesting. Uh, and uh, so they would learn geography. So uh, his intellectual curiosity became part of his mission, and that continued in the high level of scholarship and intellectual level of, of clergy education in the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan. But it, you collect all these things. So he had this museum, this huge collection, and he used it in teaching. And so some of these idols didn't get burnt, and people would convert to the Christianity. They would they say, what do you do with the idols? They would give them to me. I'll put them in my museum. So he says, I have enough idols to fill a temple in my <laughs> museum, as well as the original things and animal bones and you name it, stuffed anteaters and you name it. So, so it became quite an attraction and a community project. People would find something and bring it to him. So this museum is still in existence in Taiwan? No. So in 1893, so it was a teaching museum. That's the important okay. thing. Okay. And uh, it wasn't just collecting curios. Mm-hmm. So uh, he even uh, researched uh, Chinese traditional medicine in the museum. He had all these matchboxes with labeled in Romanized Taiwanese mm. and with the Latin name of each of these medicines, which wow. which his students taught him. So we know that in his medical work, he also used traditional Chinese medicine. The students were trained in this. So when they went off to be the pastor of one of these chapels, they were teachers, they were doctors, you know, they did a little bit of everything. And so <laughs> it was it was a what we call a, a multifaceted mission. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyways, in 1893, in pre- coming back to Canada, he brought back 16 crates of things wow. for his museum. And we actually have in his diary, they, he noted 56 of these little little gods. Wow. Uh, these were not big temple gods. These were little household gods. Sure. And to take back, to set up a missionary museum at Knox College in Toronto. This is the Presbyterian Seminary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in 1894, we see in his diary, working, setting up the museum, working and setting up the museum. And, and that missionary museum didn't last too long in 2012, they decided to build a new Knox College in Toronto. And so the old Knox College, the new one didn't have room for a museum. And people said, why do we need a missionary museum anyways? And that all went into the new University of Toronto Museum, which in 1915 then became today's Royal Ontario Museum, which is the second largest museum in Canada after the National Museum in Ottawa. And uh, they sat there in storage for, oh for 80 years. Oh, wow. Pretty much forgotten, although people knew they were there. So when we had this conference in 1997, my Mm -hmm. colleague, Mm -hmm. who had written about uh, about Mackay, Mm -hmm. uh, said in his diaries, he he talks about these boxes with gods. They're in there somewhere. We have Mm -hmm. to find these in the museum. Ah, So we went and we found them and and all these Aboriginal artifacts, magnificent weaving. And the most spectacular piece was an entire Gumalan tribe bridal of the headdress, Amber, uh, amber jewelry, uh, beads, uh, spectacular outfit. And that is now considered a national treasure in Taiwan. And that's in the Royal Ontario Museum. So people can visit the Royal Ontario Museum and see these artifacts now. A little bit, only a tiny little bit. However, in 2001, the Sun Yi Museum of Formosan Aboriginal Peoples, that they call it, 
in Taipei paid a huge amount of money to bring back a selection of these artifacts displayed for the centenary. It was a huge mm-hmm. hit in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the first time they'd ever been seen in Taiwan because after Mackay died, no one knows what happened, but that museum just disappeared. Uh, there's no record in minutes of meetings His or anything. teaching museum you're talking about. Yeah, that teaching yeah. museum. Yeah. So the, the things he collected, the oldest collection of indigenous artifacts anywhere in the world, from oh, Taiwan wow. indigenous artifacts. Had Mackay not sent these back, this amazing cultural heritage of Taiwan, of Thai yeah. people and Gomelan yeah. people yeah. would have been lost. So that's it, my favorite story about Mackay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. We may need to have you back because I think you have a very interesting story and background in terms of the work that you've done and your connection to Taiwan and the Presbyterian Church. But that's probably a story for another day, right? Yes, and I love to tell stories. You know, song <laughs> tan <laughs> tan. So it's been a great pleasure to talk about Mackay, and I hope that this will help in some way to promote his cause in Canada yes. and in the United States. Yes. Maybe dispel some of the myths or stereotypes about him as well. Right. So thank you for having me. Thank you. I've been speaking with Reverend Michael Stanton about the life and contributions that Canadian missionary George Leslie Mackay has made to Taiwan. Reverend Stanton is the founder of the Canadian Mackay Committee. Those interested in contacting the Canadian Mackay Committee can email them at canadianmackay at gmail.com. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom and democracy of the people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. To learn more about TUF, visit their website at www.tufusa.org. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.